Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, turn your Bible on, open your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the chair in front of you. And we will be looking into Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. And we are calling this message Outflow. So thanks. Uh, uh, ben did a great job last, last week on chapter 7. Uh, thanks for stepping in, Ben, and, and, and doing that. Uh, chapter 7, it was, it, was, it was good stuff, good message. Chapter 8, just a lot here as well. I want to just point out here too before we get started that the wall is rebuilt at this point. And the wall is rebuilt and there is no report of the enemy. We don't hear anything about, um, you know, we, we, we just don't hear anything about these guys who have been given Nehemiah and his crew um, a hard time. We don't hear Sanballat, we don't hear Tobiah, we don't hear anything from Geshem. Uh, it's, it's quiet because the walls are built and the defensive walls are up. And, and, and they are safely uh, inside of this. And now we're going to move into kind of a place here of rejoicing, a place of celebration. So Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand. And the ears of all of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Milchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And I just want to point out that I am brave enough to read those names where Ben wasn't, okay? So just be glad you didn't have to read those names this morning, though. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord, the Lord, and their faces to the ground, with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathiah, Hosiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, uh, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So this, again, harkens back to the book of Ezra. Remember, the, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah ultimately were one book. At some point, they got separated into two books, but, but what we've seen is that Ezra has, has brought the law the, 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 the walls are, are rebuilt, and, and, and they're reading the law uh, again to the people. And they're doing this. They've gathered together, and they've gathered together, it says, as one man. In other words, they've come together unified. They've come as a unified group to hear what God has to say from his word. And they gather here at the interesting place. It's called the water gate, and the water gate isn't a, a big political uh, scandal that happened, but in the early 70s or 
it, it, it's, uh, it, it's actually, it's on the east side of the temple complex. And 90% of the water for Jerusalem came through this gate, um, and it's really close to the Gihon Spring. So there's interesting things with water, and water is always associated, Jesus is always teaching, and he uses always this, so many times, I guess, this, this, uh, this imagery of water and, and what that represents. Uh, and and there's some interesting things about water. For one thing, you know, water, H2O, is one of the few liquids that its solid form actually floats in its liquid form. Most, most things, when it becomes solid, it becomes more dense than the in the liquid form, and it sinks. And if that were so for water, it would make life completely impossible on earth because what we would have is we would have lakes and rivers would freeze from the bottom up. The, the ice would continually sink. They would freeze from the bottom up. It would make life impossible. Um, uh, most substances dissolve in water. Um, uh, water has double the heat capacity of most substances, and it evens out the temperatures on earth through the oceans. Um, and guess what? You're made mostly of water. So when Jesus talks about life, he he's, he's begins to use this imagery and this idea of water. Um, in John 4, we see this really cool uh, the, uh, interaction with Jesus at this, and this woman at this well. And, and he makes this comment to her. He says, uh, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus basically tells this lady, look, you're drinking from the wrong well. You're you're drinking from a well that no matter how much you drink from it, no matter how many times you go back to it, you're going to have to continue to chase this. It's just going to continue to leave you thirsty and wanting. It won't truly satisfy you. And so many times, isn't that the case in our world and where we're at today in this world, is that we chase things that are unable to truly satisfy us. It's not even always that those things are necessarily bad things, but what we do is we get those things out of order. We get them into a place in our lives where we begin to prioritize those things over our relationship with God. And we begin to believe that if I just have this, or I just have that, or this, or that, that it will provide in me something that I'm deeply longing for. And it always fails to do that. And what Jesus is saying is that I've got something in me that if it goes into you, it won't even just stay in you. It'll actually well up into a well of water that becomes a spring. It becomes an outflow even out of us. And, and this, this, is, this is dynamically a different thing from religion. It, it's dynamically just a different thing from having external things in our lives that we believe are going to give us meaning, identity, and purpose. It, it, it's different from having external things in our lives that we believe are going to hem us in and keep us acting well or, or being good people. You see, Jesus didn't really, like uh, Daryl said this morning, you know, D- Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He, he came to make dead people alive. He came to transform us foundationally in, into what we were really always intended to be, which is a people who are rightly related to God. Not just a people who have an intake, who are just taking this water in, but a people who also, because this water has went in, there's now an outflow out of our lives. Something that would provide and give for, for someone else, someone else who maybe is thirsty. 
Ezra begins with, the, with the, this reading of the word here. And, and what's, what, what I like about this too is that, uh, is that they, they're there and they're being very careful to make sure that the people understand and that they get this. You see, the people have been deprived of the word. And one thing I really want to point out here is that the word and this wall are, are, are intrinsically connected to one another. In other words, the wall went down because the people forgot about what the word of God had to say, and they stepped into disobedience. And because of that, the defensive barriers that they had that protect them came down. But now those, that barrier is back up, and now Ezra is reading the law to the people, reminding them, in, in a sense here, that if this wall is going to stay up, it's only going to stay up because we're obedient to God's word. See, in our own lives, these defenses, there are defenses, there are things that God gives us that protect us against the attacks of the enemy. But here's the catch on those things. Those things always call for obedience. They're obedience. We, we, we need to be obedient to the things of God and to what God is calling us to in order for those defensive walls to stand up. And it's also, it's just crucial that we have those walls up because, see, if the walls aren't up, but yet we're trying to work on our lives, we're trying to have something different, but yet we've left breaches in this wall, you've left the enemy access into our lives, and he's going to come. What does he do? He, he, he robs, steals, and kills continually. It, it's the function of the enemy. It's what the enemy does. John 10.10, 10, he has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says that he has come to give us life and give it in abundance. But again, we've got to, through obedience, we follow. We, we believe, we trust, and we follow. And, but, but see, what's happening here is that Jesus is talking about this becoming a well. He's not talking about external law. He's not talking about following rules. He's talking about a heart that has been so trans, uh, transformed, and he's talking about a radically different way of living life. He, he's talking about a people who come to desire the things of God, who don't just endure the word of God, but who desire and trust in and live in the word of God. Verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat your fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites claimed all the people, saying, be quiet. They calmed all the people, sorry, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They had understood. Uh, in other words, the, the teachers are helping the people to clearly understand what God's word is saying, but there's, an, there's a, something else is going on there too. The people have ears to hear. Remember, Jesus would say this. He would say, you know, let them who have ears to hear, let them hear. Now, we've all got ears, but we don't all necessarily have ears to hear. And as a matter of fact, if you're going to have ears to hear and you're going to hear what the Word of God has to say to you, there are times where the Word of God and what God has to say are going to offend you. They're going to come as an offense against what you want or what our desires are or what we think is this or that. 
But we need to have open ears. We need to continue to have ears to hear and to take in what God has for us. The Shema was the, the prayer that the, that the Jews would pray morning and evening. And it was, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of a thing, right? It, 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 this was the Shema. And, and in, in Hebrew, remember, there is no word for obey. To hear is to obey. So if you don't obey, it, that means you didn't hear. Remember, we, I've said this before, but we, we practice this with our kids, right? You tell, your, you tell your kids, go do this or that, you know, and they, they don't. Go clean your room. You go in there, the room's a wreck. You're like, did you hear me? Right? Because we understand to hear, to really hear, is to obey. It's to follow through, right? That kind of hit home, didn't it? Yeah? <laughs> kind of hit home. Oh, the Holy Spirit thing. Oh, my room. Um, and the people are cut. They're cut to the quick by God's word. The people are weeping, and they're, they're, they're coming to understand, and they're, they're, they're repentant in what they've done and, and, how, and what has happened that had caused them and their people to be taken off uh, into captivity. And they're coming out of that captivity, and they're now moving into freedom. Right, and they're moving into freedom, and because they're moving into freedom, they're 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 reckoning with with what they've done, and they they're, they're, they're a repentant spirit is coming upon them, and they're beginning to weep and cry and 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 all of these different things. They're cut by this sword of the spirit, and God's word is that thing that just goes into a deep place. Right, it it divides between soul and spirit, and 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 it just goes into this deep place in us, and it it speaks. Not just into our minds, but into our very spirit. And then the, the, the priest reminds them, or Ezra reminds them, look, it's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. Don't forget that. We can't forget that. It's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And remember, joy is that thing that, that we can have regardless of our circumstance. Happiness, dependent on your circumstance. You're either happy or you're not happy, depending on what's going on in your life right now. But joy is something that can transcend our circumstances. We can be joyful in very difficult and hard times. Why? Because we have a hope that transcends this life and this world. So we can have an inward joy. We can just be okay sometimes in the middle of the difficult times when we have the joy of the Lord. Remember, many times in this book of Nehemiah, we've been reminded about the fear of the Lord. And I will, I will say today, the problem, one of the big problems with the world today is that there's no fear of God out there. There's not a fear of God. There's not a, there's not a people with a right understanding of awe and respect of who this God is, and therefore it never changes their behavior. See, a right fear of God changes your behavior so that you don't hurt yourself. I'll use my analogy again of of our wood stove at home and the boys, we have a wood stove. We light the stove, right? And then when the boys are little, when Caleb was little, we're telling him, we're looking at the stove and we're like, we're going, that's hot, hot. I don't know why we say it like that. I think it makes it more attractive to them. I don't know. Like, hot. And they're like, ooh, you know. And they see the whole deal, right? And you tell them, it's hot, don't go there. He's gonna be. What does everybody do? You get touched, you touch the stove. 
You get burned by the stove. And guess what happens when you get burned by the stove? You have a respect and an understanding for the stove that you didn't have before, right? You, you, this thing comes on you, and you have, to some degrees, you have a fear of that stove. Now, it's not the kind of fear that when, when they come out in their pajamas in the morning, that they, they see the stove is lit, and they, crawl, you know, they curl up in the, in the fetal position. No, they run to the stove, and they enjoy the warmth that the stove offers. But they never start wrestling matches next to the stove, Right? <laughs> Because you have an understanding of the power that the stove has. See, this is what the fear of the Lord does for us. And the fear of the Lord, the other thing that the fear of the Lord does is it alleviates all of those other fears that we have. We're a fearful people who are afraid of this and that and that and this. But when we understand who we're talking about, we understand the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who is able and willing to do all things... And it begins to minimize all those other fears that we have because we know that we are serving and held by a God who is infinitely greater and bigger than any struggles or problems that we could ever face. And the joy of the Lord helps us to reprioritize some of the things that we tend to have joy in that we're reliant on that we shouldn't. See, when His joy and His uh, a right understanding of, of who I am and where I'm going and, and, and what's in front of me and, 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 that, and that at the end of the day, I can be okay. Why? Because my hope isn't set in this world. But you see, if my joy is set in this world, I'm bound to be let down. I'm bound to struggle from that because this is temporal and we all know that we're leaving here. So it can't be my hope. If it's my hope, I'll live with an angst and an anxiety in my life about leaving here. But if I know that my joy is set in the Lord, then I can, I can be okay with some things. I can be okay because I know that the greatest promises of God will be fulfilled when we go, when we leave here. The word and the wall are intertwined with one another. If the people don't follow the word, the wall is not going to stay up and the enemy is going to have access God's word is something to be celebrated. And this is exactly what he tells them. Verse 13, on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing, and day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. See, there's some lights going on. It looked like a concert out there for a second. I looked over there, and it looked like... Anyway, never mind, Sorry. That's, that's a glimpse into my brain right there. You don't, you don't want to see that. 
Um, so, so God's word is this thing that, that we should celebrate in. We should, we should be celebrating in, in God's word. We, we should be um, not enduring, not having to just endure God's word, but to celebrate God's word, to understand that in God's word is our freedom. See, we think about law, we start thinking about these external things that, that keep me from doing things. Keeps me from going through intersections. It keeps me from, you know, just doing some of the things that, that we, but we have to realize that, that God's law and his word are for our freedom. See, freedom is never doing what you want to do. You do what you want to do, I promise you, eventually it'll lead you to bondage. Freedom is doing the thing that keeps us out of bondage. That's what freedom is. And God has lined out for us in his word how to stay out of bondage. See, it's not an external law, it's an internal desire. And we need to understand and we need to begin to celebrate this as a higher vision for our lives, that what God is calling us to is a higher vision. He's calling us to something more. He's not calling us to follow rules. He's calling us to understand that these things that he's telling us and places where he puts limitations on things, he's calling us to something greater, something grander. He's calling us all to a higher vision of what life is than what you and I tend to have apart from him. He's calling us to understand that it's all a reflection of who he is. There's no separation between the sacred and the secular, that God is doing something in all of these venues. And whatever we do and however we do it, we do it according and for him. And we do it in obedience to him, not, not out of servitude, but, but, but out of a desire, out of this heart that has changed from the inside. And now what's on the inside is starting to come to the outside. So in this, they find out about this, this celebration called Sukkot or, or the Feast of Booths, right? And, and it's this thing where, where every year they were to go and they were to gather all of this stuff and make these, these kind of these, uh, these booths or these tents, these tabernacles, this kind of an idea. And, and they haven't done this for a thousand years since Joshua, since the time of Joshua. See, all of these things, because of disobedience, these things have been lost to them. And I'm telling you, if you want to look and you want to see and you, don't, you wonder how could it get lost, look at our country today. See, we're talking about missionaries going out, but other places are talking about missionaries coming in here. Because we have lost track of what it is to, to know God. We've lost track of the goodness of God. We've, we've bought into a lower vision of what life is. And what marriage and family and identity and all of these kinds of things, we've bought into a lower vision than what God has. And we're, we're getting to be a people that are more and more and more lost. And this is a picture of God bringing his people back in. And, 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 and they're being found. And they're, they're finding their identity and who they truly are and what the calling has been on them for all times. Again, I repeat this. We don't need new things. We need old things. We need to seek out the ancient paths, we're told in Jeremiah, to seek out what is old because, because we just don't need new things because we've got old problems. And old solutions are, the only, are, are, are there to, to deal with those old problems that we've got. See, the Feast of Booths, it reminded the people of their dependence on God. It was all about the time where he had delivered them out of slavery and they were now wandering in the wilderness, but he was guiding them and he was directing them. And it was all about their dependence on God. And so they went out and they lived in these little tents, basically. 
Have you ever done any backpacking or you ever been out somewhere like that and you get in the middle of a really bad thunderstorm in your tent and stuff? You start to realize your dependence on God. You're like, I'm feeling kind of really small out here sometimes, right? And this thing is really, I'm just lighting up my tent and lightning is popping all over the place and hail and it's kind of scary. But it reminds us sometimes of those things. What it does is, is that sin puffs us up. And some of these things bring us back down to a right understanding of who we are and our dependence and our need for God in our lives. See, we have a, a way of trying to think that we know what's best, but like Proverbs says, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We also understand, too, from this picture that, uh, oh, this is, sorry, uh, this is just um, the, the directive to to practice the, the Feast of Booths. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying on the 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day, it shall be called a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days, you shall present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall not do any ordinary work. And this is, this is why Nehemiah is calling the people. It's the first day of this, and he's telling them, no, no, don't, don't, don't mourn. This isn't a day of mourning. See, a recognition sometimes of, of, of the reality of where we've been and, and how far we've strayed away from God, it, it causes a, a, a mourning, and there's, there's nothing wrong with a, with a godly repentance, Right? Remember that God is never going to shame us into these spots, but, but he will convict us. The Holy Spirit convicts his people of sin and, and tells us. And, and when we repent, you know, some, sometimes that, that can have tears. It doesn't have to. Tears aren't necessarily a sign of repentance. Sometimes tears are only a sign of we're just really upset we got caught and we got called out. And now we're going to have to deal with these consequences in our lives. But real repentance looks like a turning. It looks like a change. It literally means to do a 180. It means to turn and to go back into the ways of God. This idea of, of this Feast of Booths, it, it points back, too, to this idea that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Where it says He dwelt among us, the Word there is that He tabernacled among us. He came and He lived with us. He put on the tent of a body, and he came, and he lived here, and he, and he lived a perfect life. And this, 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 this uh, thing goes on for seven days, which is just this picture of spiritual perfection. And, and this seventh day, you know, came to its conclusion on the cross for us. And, and, and Jesus, because he came, and because he put on the tent of, of a body, and because he tabernacled, and he lived with us, and he, he lived a life that, that he couldn't, uh, that we could never live, he... He made relationship with a holy and perfect God possible. And he, and he, and he removed this idea of the tabernacle that, that the presence of God was separate from people. And, and we see that in that, that the, the curtain is, is split from top to bottom, meaning that, that access has been gained through the cross for whosoever would come. That there's now no, there's no separation between us and a, and a holy place that, that Jesus has bought a place in a way that we can have access into that holy place. It was during this Feast of Booths that, um, that Jesus stood up on the, on the final day, and he said this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And we're in that spot now, right now. We're, we're in this spot where, where, where we're in the kind of the already but not yet, they say, right? It's, it, it's that it's already been done for us. It's already been purchased. The, 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 the work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient, and, and it's done, and it's enough. And because of what Jesus has done, we have eternal life, and we have heaven to look forward to, but we're still here. And so to live is Christ, but to die is gain. While we're here to live is to live in obedience and for the things of Jesus. See, the seventh day was called Hoshana Rabbah, the great salvation is what it meant. And Jesus stands up and he says, look, if you'll just drink of me, out of you will come rivers of living water. It won't be just something that's about you. It doesn't just go into you. It goes into you and it can't stay there. It rushes back out and it provides and it provides for others and it makes a difference. It begins to go out and make a difference in this world and we create a community that begins to look different than the communities of the world. We become a more peculiar people, something that people go, what is going on inside of there? That's what the church needs to be. The church needs to be such a peculiar community that the world out there just goes, how is it that you guys love each other so well and so much? I think we saw a glimpse. We saw, we saw a part of that yesterday, I believe. It was good. It was really good. It was a hard day, but it was good in that sense. Finally, the last day, the eighth day, they're called to a, a, a solemn assembly, the Sheminai Atzeret. I'm sure I'm wrong with that, but... It's the eighth day. It's a new thing. See, eight, biblically, is that new thing. Jesus was resurrected, technically, on the eighth day. A full day, Sunday was the first day of the week for their calendar. It was the beginning of something new. It was the beginning of a new week. The completion of the seven and to the one, now it's the eighth day. It's a new thing. It's a new thing that's happening. It's a new thing that... Jesus is doing. If you study music, you know that if you go through the major notes, when you get to the eighth note, it's a new, what do I call it? Uh, what? Measure. measure. New measure, a new octave. It's a new thing. It's a new beginning, right? Jesus came to make all things new. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven. And this is what that solemn assembly is representing, I think, here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of life, the spring of the water of life, without payment. It's free. Salvation is free. And it is a higher vision for how to live. It's not just a, 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 an external following of rules and laws. See, the greatest promises of God are realized when we leave here, when we, when we enter into that place where, where we see ultimately that, that, that God remakes and he does all things new. He, 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 he brings a new earth and a new heaven. And our dwelling place will be on earth. And we will live forever and ever in a resurrected body with him. It will be a time of rest, of feasting. We'll be at the wedding supper of the lamb. And all of the pain and all of the difficulties and all of the hard times of this life will be behind us. But while we're in this life, God reminds us that he's given us a direction in this life. He's given us a means and a way of living life, a means and a way to keep the walls up in our own lives, our own defenses, so that the enemy doesn't have access into our lives. But when we break this, we put a breach in those walls, we live for a lower vision of the life, and we grant the enemy access, legal access, into our lives. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for who you are. We give praise and glory and honor to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction to us. We thank you that you know us and you love us, that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so, Lord, we magnify and we glorify you. We want to live with the right awe and respect of who you are, a right fear of who you are, and we want to live in the strength of the joy of the Lord, that your joy would become our joy. Lord, we give you praise and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.